Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv. Glad you're able to join us today on this Tuesday afternoon as we discuss Bible topics and subjects. Um, we're happy you're able to join us through whichever channel you are joining us. So if you're using the Zoom app, we want you to open up your Q&A window in the Zoom app and text away any questions or comments you want to ask us during the program could be based on whatever we're talking about or something that we're not even talking about yet. If you have a question, we'll put it in the queue and, and start discussing it. Um, if you're watching us on the Bible Quest YouTube channel, same thing there. Just use that comment box. Uh, Jonathan will be monitoring that as well. And we'll get your questions and comments out and talk about those things as well. We have Scott Smelter joining us from... Uh, Gettysburg. Hi, Scott. Hey, Drew. How are you doing today? Uh, good. Very good to see you. Stephen from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Hi, hi, Stephen. How you doing? I am doing well, Drew. Welcome, everybody. Good. And uh, as I mentioned, Jonathan. Jonathan is also in the Gettysburg area. And Jonathan, you'll be joining us as a panelist as well as taking care of technical stuff today, right? Uh, yeah, I'll do my best. We'll he's multitasking today. Multitask. Well, he's, he's the youngest of the group, so he's able to do that, I'm sure. Okay, and let me get rid of some of that noise. Speaking of multitasking. Yeah, there's all kinds of buttons coming in. Let me see if I can stop share. Did I st oh, okay, well, you already stopped the share. That's good. Um, uh, Jeff will not be joining us today. Jeff's, Jeff is out taking care of other important things, and, uh, but we're glad you're able to join us today. We're going to be talking about, what are we talking about today, Stephen? Uh, we're going to talk about something that I think is hopefully a helpful, pertinent subject. It's about self-worth, uh, which has kind of been a buzzword in our culture for a while, especially since the 90s. Uh, and it, a lot of different ideas get batted around, but I think as we're talking about, this is Bible Quest, we want to approach things from a biblical perspective. How do we think about self-worth and particularly finding our self-worth in the Lord uh, and in what he said about us? Um, and I want to start in Ecclesiastes and just talk about kind of the general problem is people try to find their self-worth and really meaning or fulfillment in all sorts of different things. And that's not a new problem. It's certainly relevant right now, but it's been relevant for thousands of years as long as people have been around. And in general, you all remember the author of Ecclesiastes, likely Solomon, what had he tried to do in the book of Ecclesiastes, particularly chapter two? Well, the whole book of Ecclesiastes is basically a, a giant experiment um, that the writer is trying to find fulfillment. He's trying to find pleasure, trying to find joy. Uh, and especially in chapter two, um, he explores just getting a bunch of things collecting things, trying to, trying to have his value in, in doing that. Yeah. And I mean, man, he, he tries it all. Uh, he's got gardens, he's got pools and servants, and he's got herds and flocks, silver and gold. He's got singers, he's got women and concubines and he, he, he tries working, he tries wisdom. And what does he say at the end of the day? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's, it's a bunch of emptiness. I don't find worth. I don't find value or fulfillment in these things. And, and the book has some helpful observations, but what's the conclusion at the end of the book? What does he say is the thing we really need to do? Fear God and keep his commandments. That's right. And, and then 
when you have that first kind of cornerstone in place, everything else can fall into place. There's some good things to enjoy under the sun. There's some ways to go about your life that will result in generally a better outcome. But Ecclesiastes is a pretty raw book. So as, as we think about that, one of the things that I've noticed when it comes to self-worth is it's easy to kind of go to one of two extremes uh, when it comes to how we view ourselves. And do people tend to think too much of themselves or too little of themselves? Yes. Yes, that's right. <laughs> what happens when we start to think too much of ourselves? Well, that's where the egotistical, arrogant type of person comes in where uh, you can never do any wrong. You're, you're always right. Uh, you're the best at everything. No one is ever at a higher level than you, that, that type of attitude. Yeah, that's right. And what happens when people think too little of themselves? Because you think that maybe that's humility, right? But what really happens when we do that? They can make themselves unproductive. Yeah. You can just be too hard on yourself. Uh, a lot of self-deprecation. You know, you're just focused on I'm not worth anything. I'm useless. I'm ugly. Um, and really, at the end of the day, even that second approach is still self-centered. Uh, Scott, I know you've given an illustration before about uh, this kind of a thing, dealing with humility and false humility. What, what was that illustration you give sometimes? Oh, it's the line. It was either from uh, John Stock in his book about Sermon on the Mount, or it might have been from C.S. Lewis, I don't remember, but it was, uh, humility is not a pretty girl telling everybody that she's ugly. Uh, and, and it went on to make the point, being humble doesn't mean that you don't recognize when something is good or it's been done well, but it's being able to appreciate when something is done well, whether you did it or somebody else did it. Mm. Yeah, that's really helpful because one of the symptoms of pride is not wanting to compliment or see the good in, in what other people are doing. Scott, um, uh, Stephen, also in, the, in either one of those cases, the person that thinks too much of himself or the person that thinks too low of themselves, in both cases, they don't realize it, that the other people around them are very uncomfortable around that. Mm-hmm. And one, I think there are some people that simultaneously think too much of themselves and too little of themselves. And they're insecure. They, they don't feel good about themselves. And so they feel that if they would brag or even make up things, then other people would feel better about them. And that would make them feel better about themselves. And they can there are people that would do this even about things that aren't true, but they get some sort of security in making other people think they're better than they are out of an insecurity where they don't feel good about themselves, but they think they deserve to be thought of more highly than people do. And so they're constantly being conceited and bragged and it's all, it's a, it's a destructive selfishness. Yeah. Vanity of vanities. And it, it kind of turns into, I think there are kind of two sides of the whole process of, of self-deprecating thought. There's either you genuinely feel awful towards yourself or there's that kind of thing like Scott was, Scott was alluding to of you're also kind of fishing for compliments. You, you set yourself down so that other people will have an opportunity to tell you how great you are. Yeah. And, and neither of those are healthy. Yeah. And, and, and it can be a, 
It can be a sweet old grandmother serving dinner to everybody, and everybody knows she's the best cook in the county, but, you know, she's, oh, it's probably not any good. (laughs) (laughs) And there's the bait. (laughs) Reel it in. Uh, no, and that's, uh, and of course, sometimes things like that can be all in good fun. Uh, there's all sorts of times I'll poke fun at myself, uh, in, in some way like that, but there is a line that can be crossed where we really are getting into dangerous, selfish territory with that kind of stuff. We, we just need to be careful. Um, one of the things I think is helpful to look at is just some of the things in the world where we are tempted to find our worth, tempted to find our value, and then kind of look at the other end of that where we ought to find our value. Look over at Jeremiah chapter 3 for a second, uh, 23 and 24 at the end of this chapter. Uh, Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So what are the three things that uh, the Lord targets here as he's addressing the people of God through Jeremiah? Uh, what, what three things does he say make to not boast in? Himself. Yeah, yourself. And what three things in particular? I mean, wisdom. Yeah, so the, yeah, the wise man. Don't let the wise man boast in his wisdom. Rich, riches. Yeah, the rich man. And what's the other one? Mighty man in his yeah, the, might. Yeah, his strength or his might. And that sums up a lot really, of what we can be tempted to put our confidence in or get our sense of self-worth from. Uh, What sort of things do people do when they get their sense of self from their riches? What are some ways that that manifests itself? They expect other people to kind of kowtow to them because they're wealthy. And and, and they'll let you And if they ever get called on the carpet for something simple, you know, they've... uh, been pulled over for, you know, not stopping at a stop sign or something, and they, they'll tell the officer, do you know who I am? Because they think their bank account or their fame or something entitles them to be treated differently, and they, th- that's their identity. Yeah. And, and people can show this in all kinds of ways, whether it's through the car they drive. And there's nothing inherently wrong with nice cars, but people can use that as an outlet to say, hey, I got money in the bank. Uh, the technology uh, is one way that more and more uh, people have a certain type of technology that can be a status symbol for people. And we have to watch out for that. Um, Scott, on the other hand, is not in, in any danger of anyone thinking he's showing off with his. I tell you what, this is this is high tech right here. That's right, man. <laughs> and of course, with with all these things, whether it's a car or whether it's technology, what happens like every few years? Right, new model comes out. It becomes old. I mean, it's amazing, especially with technology right now. It's like if you're two years behind, it's like oh, that's ancient history. Um, and it's a, it's kind of a rat race. But even, to, even if it doesn't get technologically outdated, we lose the desire for it really quickly. We want something now more 
bigger, better. Sky. I used to have I used to have a piece of equipment, and it was before PowerPoint. It was before PowerPoint projectors were common and everything. And it was a device that you put on top of an overhead projector to put your uh, computer image up on the wall. If I remember, I mean, I bought it used when it was old technology. Uh, but I think the original price of that thing was $10,000. Oh. It was in the thousands, I know for sure. Maybe it was a thousand, but it was in the thousands. And, you know, of course, a few years ago, I just threw it in the garbage. You know, it was <laughs> completely, however proud someone might have been uh, of it that bought it new, it was, it was nothing after just a short period of time. Yeah. So none of these things satisfies. I think that's the point you're trying to get to. That we're not satisfied. There's something more in life. There's got to be. Exactly. And if we get our sense of self from that, we're going to be empty. Uh, we're always going to have to have the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And at the end of the day, vanity of vanities, um, the mighty man boasting in his might, uh, that can take several different forms. What are some ways that somebody might be tempted to trust in their own strength or their own might? I think about particularly if, if someone is in a corporate environment using their influence and, and status uh, however high or low they are on the, the corporate ladder, if they have some kind of way to throw their weight around, uh, letting that be, you know, I've just got to be up a rung, up a rung, up a rung. Um, the more people I have control over, that's what makes me somebody. There's a certain type of person that looks for a job that will give them authority. And uh, you can see this, uh, a lot of policemen, you know, do a wonderful job and they're serving the community well and they're doing risky things and they do an excellent job. But there's a certain personality uh, that enjoys what well, you remember Barney Fife, you know, uh, <laughs> to be able to be the big shot and throw their weight around is a big thing to some people. Yeah. For sometimes the guy that's six foot eight, I'm not picking on you, Scott. I don't, you're not six foot eight, are you? It's okay. He's six foot six. He, okay, so I'm not picking on you, Scott. But like the guy that's six, six point six eight, muscular, walks into the room, and you know, you see, he's got that macho feeling about himself, and you know, that's that's that expressing your might and your power. And yeah. one one thing about this is interesting is the principle from Philippians four verse four. Paul said, "Rejoice." In the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. It's not wrong to rejoice in other things. The Bible tells us to rejoice in other things. Proverbs 5 says rejoice in the wife of your youth. But you can lose your wife. You can lose your wealth. You can lose your children like uh, Job did. You can lose your your health. You know, the, 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 big, the bodybuilder, he's not going to look like that when he's in the coffin. And you can lose, you can lose all these other things that people make first place. But Paul, at this point, he's a prisoner. He doesn't have family. He doesn't apparently have a lot of money at this point, uh, but he's appreciative for a gift that's come to him. What's the one thing they couldn't take away from Paul? His joy in the Lord. And that's where he says, rejoice. We had a, uh, a, comment come in from Benjamin. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. 
We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. That's from C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Um, So thanks for passing that along, uh, BJ. Um, So as we think about this, uh, we can be tempted in all sorts of ways. The last one is wisdom. And I think this one is particularly uh, we're particularly susceptible to this one in our culture right now with just academia and maybe even more than people want to be seen as strong. They want to be seen as smart. I've got my degrees, my, my letters after my name, and that's what makes me somebody. People will really listen to me if I'm educated or I'm at the top of my field or whatever. Again, note that the Lord doesn't say here, let the wise man be foolish. <laughs> Let the strong man, you know, stop working out or whatever. You know, he doesn't say those things, but he says, don't boast in these things. Boast that you know me, that I'm the Lord and the things that I delight in. Um, one other thing that people might be tempted to, is all the things that we've talked about are kind of sometimes a stereotypical male things to, to be prideful in. Um, something else that people can put, their self-worth in or get their self-worth from is in their relationships, uh, who they know, uh, how close they are in those relationships. And that can be more of a stereotypically female thing. Of course, there's overlap both ways on these. Um, But when you think about uh, different examples of that, I think about uh, the uh, parents of the blind man um, in John chapter nine, who were ready to throw even their own son under the bus, so to speak because they were afraid of being thrown out of the synagogue by being connected to Jesus. And there's power in relationships. And there's going to be times where if there's certain people that make us feel accepted or feel like we're a worthwhile person, if that's where we're getting our self-worth from, it's going to lead to all kinds of problems. If the Lord is calling us in one direction and that group is calling us in another direction. Can you think of examples uh, where that kind of a thing happens? Well, it can happen with, um, with your uh, family relationships. I think that's one of the most difficult uh, things, especially maybe a, a parent-child relationship, and that can go either way. Um, Jesus, in uh, I think is Luke chapter 9, uh, said, if you cannot hate father or mother, um, then you cannot be my disciple. And while we've talked about this before on this program, he doesn't mean you need to hate your family members. But in comparison, if the Lord calls you to do something and your family is calling you to do something else, you need to choose the Lord. And what that means is the regular relationship that you would enjoy with your family. Um, You can't always have that same type of relationship if they're choosing not to follow Jesus and you're choosing to follow Jesus. Uh, And that can be a huge wall for people where i mean you grow up with your parents uh, i lived with my parents for 18 years and if they decided that they no longer want to follow jesus then our relationship has to change um and that that can be difficult not wanting to lose that type of camaraderie with your with your direct blood family mm-hmm. i uh i shared this just recently i don't know if i shared it with you guys but i, I shared it just recently so when i was when I first became a Christian, I was in my early 20s or mid-20s. I came home out of the Navy and started talking about Jesus Christ and being raised in a very um, Roman Catholic family, Italian Roman Catholic family. Everybody was really 
uh, Catholic Church oriented. And one of my family members was asking me that they wanted me to participate in some activities that I didn't want to. I knew I wouldn't do that as a Christian. And time would go by and we'd have discussions about it until finally the one key figure in the family said, what's going on? Why are you not participating with the family? And I said, well, Jesus Christ said, and before I even finished, the, finished it, he actually said, I don't care what Jesus Christ said. Family comes first. Whoa. Whoa, you talk about blowing me away. And there's what exactly you're talking about. Family relationship was more important to this person than any relationship with Jesus Christ. And he verbalized what a lot of people do. Yes, I have to give him that. He was he verbalized his heart and his honesty and he brought it out as bad as it was. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've seen something like this happen recently. I was listening to a sermon on YouTube about uh, a preacher, a denominational preacher, who had decided to change his mind on homosexuality and, like, what the Bible teaches about that. And he had all these reasons and went through passages and cultural context and tried to, you know, tweak some things to make it make sense. And toward the end of the lesson, he talked about how his son had recently come out as being homosexual. And I was like, ah, there, there's your real reason right, right there. Uh, this is not very likely about what the Bible teaches. Right. But you, you've changed your mind because of your son. Uh, you want to accept your, your son and you don't want to reject him, his lifestyle. Um, and so, and like Jonathan said, you know, this goes both ways. We want to be accepted by our parents. We want to accept our children. And the fact is we've got to find our self-worth in the Lord. We've got to respect Jesus more than any other relationship that we may have. And you know, what's interesting about this is even in marriage, um, the, the most important relationship that we have on earth, when we're finding our self-worth in the Lord, it frees us to be able to serve our spouse. Uh, a lot of people are looking for romantic relationships to be the thing that fills them up, the thing that gives them worth and purpose and fulfillment in this world uh, on a lot of different levels. And if you ever put that kind of pressure on another person, you're going to reach a point where they don't, they fail you, they let you down. And, and a lot of people then move on to the next person and move on to the next relationship and then spend their life jumping from relationship to relationship. Whereas when we find our worth in the Lord, and in serving other people, we can find a lot of joy and fulfillment in marriage, but realize that that's not the ultimate thing. And, and, and BJ brings up another, uh, another really good comment on that, on that idea of finding your fulfillment in other people and, and your expectations for other people. Uh, he, he said, if my worth is defined by anything other than Christ, realistically, I will see the worth of others based on something other than Christ as well. Uh, and he said the, the Corinthians illustrate that issue really clearly. Um, yeah. the, the, this emphasis on on where you find your worth is also how you find what other people and where their worth comes from. And if they don't follow through, like, like Stephen brought up, um, that can be very disappointing and, and really detrimental to both parties whenever somebody lets you down. Let's read James chapter 2 on that very point. Um, with the Corinthians, it was about some of their love of philosophy and different things. But look at this in James chapter 2. My brethren, hold not, this is James 2 verse 1. 
My brethren, hold not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For there comes to your synagogue a man with a gold ring and fine clothing, and there comes also in a poor man in vile clothing. And you have regard to him that wears the fine clothing, and say, sit you here in a good place. You say to the poor man, stand you there, or sit under my footstool. Do not you become, uh, do not you make distinctions among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts. Hearken, my beloved brethren, did not choose them that are poor, did God not choose those that are poor as to the world to be rich in faith. Yeah, that's a really good point. Where we get our self-worth from is in how we measure other people. In this case, people probably measure themselves by their wealth. It's where they get their security and status from. And so rich guy comes in. Oh, yes, you're somebody. You sit here. Poor guy comes in. Uh, we'll put you over there. Um, so, yeah, this all goes back to that, that concept. Um, earlier, I think uh, BJ had also commented 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And uh, Scott alluded to this a second ago. It's helpful to read it because um, especially in chapter one and chapter two, he really hits at the heart of this attitude of pride. And, and he points out something about the Corinthians themselves because they were all about status and stuff. But look at what he says. First Corinthians one, verse 26, first Corinthians one, 26 for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Earlier, Stephen, you had mentioned about ways that men tend to boast or brag or find their self-worth. And you mentioned something about how others might. I saw a website the other day. I was working on a sermon based on First Corinthians 13, not boastful. And I found this website that you would have thought was good, but it apparently was not. It was like how to blow your own horn without sounding boastful. And it was this article. And it gave an example. And it said... You know, so the other woman is talking about how her son just got accepted into an Ivy League school. And so you might say, you know, the way to bring the attention back to your side is to say, oh, yes, I remember when my Samuel uh, was working really hard, you know, on his MIT, you know, uh, doctor or whatever. It was it was just. And the, the, the article presented is this is a way to do it without looking like, I don't think it fooled anybody, but that's <laughs> so ugly. And let's point out this also. It's, it's, it's not wrong to find self-satisfaction in doing something well, but those shouldn't be the priority. They should be underneath a love of other people and love of God. For example, does Proverbs talk about if you do not train your children, they will bring shame to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 29.15. Does Proverbs talk about, you know, correct your child, you know, train your child, etc., and they will bring you joy. They will bring joy to your soul. Yes, and it should. 
But there's a difference between that and then an arrogance of somebody who can't hear something good about somebody else without needing to then, you know, compete or do one upmanship to find their self-worth in, in what, what their children have, have done in, in, a, in a arrogant way. Yeah, our, our ability to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep is very telling of our, our level of pride. Yes. Yes. You know, I'll bring up one other area because we can see it out in the world very easily with the type of things like the article you referenced, Scott. But this type of thing can creep into spiritual atmosphere. Um, and Jesus addressed a lot of this type of thing in the Sermon on the Mount that he, where he talks about in chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others, yes. so that they'll look at you and say, "Oh, you know." And and uh, that was the Pharisees, right? Uh, over and over. I mean, Jesus addresses uh, prayer. He addresses giving to the poor. He addresses fasting, and says, "Do these things in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you." Um, we got to be about what the Lord sees. But you know, I think even on a personal level we can get to a place where we define our spirituality more in terms of how well we're doing with this or that, or like our level of performance. And it can come become, become kind of a self-deprecation kind of a thing sometimes uh, where I, I'm, I'm trying to do this. Oh, I, I messed up. And even to the point where people think, well, I'm just so bad. I'm just so wicked. How could God ever forgive me? And I'm not talking about, people who are living in sin, uh, people who live in sin, they got to repent and turn back. The Bible is clear about that. But on a self-worth level, we can get to a point where we feel like we can't go on. How could God ever forgive me? And you know what's interesting to me? Uh, there's that extreme. And the other extreme is people who feel like, I've just done so much good already. Look at what I've done for the Lord. You know, oh, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have, you know, uh, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Um, Paul, in his mindset, illustrates how to get away from both of those in Philippians chapter 3. Um, look at there at Philippians chapter 3. Um, While you're turning over here, Steve, I just want for anybody that just tuned in, we're talking about self-esteem, self-worth. We could go to the extreme of thinking more of ourselves on one occasion, or we can go below the opposite and not think enough about ourselves and, and look down. Upon, we don't have any self-esteem. So that's what we're talking about in this discussion. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah. So Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses uh, 3 down through verse 10, Paul discusses his past. And starting in verse 3, he says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so Paul just rolls out his Jewish pedigree here and says, look who I am. But then he says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
whatever we've done, even that's good in and of itself, we don't boast in that. We put that in the light of Jesus and we say, wow, I still don't deserve what Jesus has done for me. And on the other hand, Paul could have spent all his time moping around and saying, I, I killed Christians. You know, how could God ever do anything with me? And yet, Paul puts that in the past too. And in 1 Timothy 1, he says, in me is the foremost. Jesus is displaying his perfect patience for, to those who are going to believe. Scott? What you just said, we have Jesus saying those very words in Luke chapter 17, or the opposite of that. Uh, Luke chapter 17, Jesus said in verse 7, Who is there of you having sown, plowing, or keeping sheep, that he will say to him when he is coming from the field, Come straightway, sit down to meet, and will not rather say to him, Make ready for the eyes up, and gird myself, and serve me. And then Jesus says in verse 9, Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded? Even so you also. When you shall have done all the things that are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which it was our duty to do. And here's an interesting contrast. So before God, because we have sinned and we're saved by grace, even when we then turn and do what's right, and we're doing what God wants us to do, there should still be a humility. We are unprofitable, unworthy servants. But how do you tie that in with this, Ephesians 4.1? I therefore, prisoner in the Lord, beseech you to do what? To walk worthy of the calling. Yeah. So how do those tie together? Well, certainly there's a real sense in which we're, we're never going to be worthy in the sense of we've always done everything perfectly. Right. Um, but we can be made worthy uh, by the blood of Jesus. It, in the forgiveness that he offers, he washed Paul clean yeah. of what he had done. He washed Peter clean of what he had done. And then he wanted to use those men who put their whole life into gospel service. Yeah. And, and, then, and then having been given mercy that you don't deserve, at least walk worthy uh, in respect to you. I've compared it to this. You have two brothers. One takes care of himself, lives a responsible life, has a good heart, liver, etc. The other has abused drugs for many, many years. He's ruined his heart. He's ruined his liver. He's going to die. The healthy brother is in a traffic accident. They tell him he's soon going to die. And he tells the doctors and he signs a paper, I want to give my organs to my brother. Now, here is the brother who's got cirrhosis of the liver. He's got all this damage to his organs. Does he deserve these healthy organs of the brother who's been responsible and took care of himself? No, he doesn't deserve that. But having been given the gift, what does the whole family hope that he will do with a new heart and, and a new liver? Walk worthy. <laughs> Yeah. worthy of the new chance, the new life that he's been given. Yeah, yeah that's right. Benjamin uh, BJ, puts another comment in. He says, the beauty of shifting the focus from self to God is that it recognizes the worth that only God gives, which simultaneously grants both genuine humility and matchless confidence. He's thinking of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Very good. Yeah. 
Let's go over and read that real quick. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10, because this really does help, again, hit this balance that we're trying to get at where it's not that we're ignoring good works or trying to say that that's not a thing, but grace points all the glory to God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, I also think of this, I really like the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, After he's talked about uh, the witnesses to the resurrection, he talks about himself. And listen to this in First Corinthians 15, uh, in verse uh, 8, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So there you see, he recognizes what he's done and could despair in that. But then verse 10, but by the grace of God. I am what I am. And so he realizes God has had mercy on me. God has made, given me another chance and put me to work. And then look at the last part of it. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Uh, I love to see that the shift here and how Paul acknowledges what he did wrong He also acknowledges that he's working harder than any of the apostles, which is a pretty big thing to say. But he balances it by focusing on the grace of God. It's by God's grace that I am what I am, and it's by God's grace that I'm working hard right now. And he just points all the glory to God on both both counts. It's amazing. Everyone's looking for comfort and peace with the chaos that's going on in the world, and it's right there in front of us in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and you know, um, there's a passage I want to share with y'all. Uh, this has been helpful to me. Look over Isaiah 43 for a minute. Um, uh, I think this is helpful. Uh, this is a passage uh, in the latter half of Isaiah uh, that's focused a lot toward the, the remnant that will return and some hope for them. Um, but uh, here's what the Lord says about Israel. I think that though this is also true of those who are Christians. Um, look, look at what uh, he says here. Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, They shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. So just in the first two verses there, what are some things that you see that should shape how we view ourselves based on how God views us? What are are the things that God says about Israel here? He created them. Yeah, he made them. Uh, We are created by God. He loves us. He made us. He understands us better than anybody. Well, what else in this passage? He, he claims us, or he claimed them by name. You're mine. I know you. 
Yeah. And isn't that a powerful thought that God's not just waiting up there to zap us. Uh, He will punish the wicked, but man, he knows our name. And for those of us who are in Christ, we are his, we belong to him. And that gives us that sense of belonging that we sent, that we seek in so many other relationships. Uh, God, God says, I've called you by name, you're mine. And what's he going to do for them in verse two? When you pass through the waters, you don't have to worry. I'm going to be there with you. Yeah. Uh, the water, the fire representing our different trials. And he says, I- I'm going to be there with you, and it's not going to be too difficult for you. I'm not going to let the rivers overflow. The fire's not going to consume you. It's going to be hard, but God will be with us in those hard moments. Verses 3 uh, and 4 and 5 use some interesting pictures, but it talks about how much God loves Israel. He says, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. So here he's saying, I will give anything for you. I will give the richest of the things of this world for you. Um, And that's important for us to realize. Uh, He uses imagery here that, would have been in their minds the greatest treasures of the world. You know, Egypt and Cush and Seba and all these things. But on this side of the cross, what do we know that God was also willing to give for us? His only son. We were worth to God the death of his only son. Um, so that this even gets carried higher, you know, looking back on this passage. Um, And I love verse four, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. If we realize how much the Lord loves us, it will fill a hole in our hearts that we will be tempted to fill with other sources of love and approval from the world. We've got to realize this love God has for us. And coming back in verse, uh, the end of this passage, verse seven, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Uh, Why were we created? Mm, For his glory. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? He gives us a purpose there. I also think it's cool that he says, uh, everyone who is called by my name, earlier in the passage, it says, I know your name. And here we call ourselves by God's name. Uh, so this is the cool things there. Other thoughts or comments on that passage in Isaiah 43? I think many people identify themselves by that they know somebody famous or even something as distant as my cousin is a roommate with a guy in a Geico commercial. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's uh, to, to be known and loved by the creator of the universe. Wow. And it's interesting, I like how you emphasize verse four, that, that God says, you're precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Um, when I think about this, this whole program, we're talking about self-worth or maybe another way of saying it is, is self-value. Um, what, what gives something value? What defines something's value? What's, what somebody's willing to pay for that thing? So like I have, I have like a, a little paperclip. 
it's not worth anything. But if Scott really, really loves paper clips and he's been searching for a small white paper clip for all his life and he's going to pay $10 million for this paper clip, this is an extremely valuable paper clip now. Um, but if Scott or no one else wanted to pay for that paper clip, it's just a paper clip. Our value comes from God because God has placed an intrinsic value on us that, that we're worth the price of his son. Uh, and his son's life and the blood that was shed for us. Uh, and you, you ultimately, the, I think it's fundamentally flawed in our culture that you decide what your self-worth is. You, you don't decide your value. Someone, an, ex, an outside source decides your value. And God has decided what your value is. So realizing that, finding that God places that value on you, um, it, it's just counterintuitive to try to find it yourself. Scott, were you going to say something? Uh, I, I think we're about out of time, but it's been a really, really, really good program. So. Well, thanks, guys. I hope this has been helpful. Go ahead, Drew. Thank you, Stephen, for uh, bringing this uh, topic to the surface and talking about it. Guys, thanks for your comments, and look forward to seeing each of you next week. And everyone in the audience, thank you for joining us. We invite you to ask questions, give us your comments. Give, give us thumbs up on our, our, our YouTube channel, too. Help us. Get that higher up in value and get more people out. Yes, yeah, Scott. Thanks to Benjamin for the good comments. Yes, thank you. Take care, guys. <laughs>